Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Apparel Coalition's Drivers of Change podcast series. In this series, we speak to leading voices from within the textile, apparel and fashion supply chain, as well as external experts to discuss how industry can transform in order to tackle the climate crisis and address social challenges. We'll explore what's happening and what needs to happen if we are to create a more equitable, sustainable and resilient future for all. I'm your host, Lee Green, and I'm the Senior Director of Communications and Marketing at the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. Enjoy the show. Welcome, listeners. You're in for a real treat today as I'm joined by Baptiste carrier Pradel, co-founder and director of 2B Policy, um, which specializes in anticipating and integrating legislative discussions into business decisions, especially those around sustainability. Baptiste is also chair of the Policy Hub, which unites the apparel and footwear industry to speak in one voice and propose policies that accelerate circular and sustainable practices. Welcome, Baptiste. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for having me here and welcome to everybody who's listening. Thank you. Um, And so, right, uh, jumping straight into a topic that is, I think, fair to say, dividing opinions at the moment. Um, that being the EU Commission's Substantiating Green Claims Directive, um, which was published only last week on March 23. Now, there has been a lot of noise leading up to the EU Commission's announcement. So, Baptiste, let me start at the beginning and ask, what was the hope and ambition for the directive? That's a very good question to uh, to start with. Um, before I start any further, it's very important to have in mind exactly as you mentioned that the directive has just been re- released uh, last week, and uh, we are still in the process to really understanding how far the directive goes, how well the directive is integrated with other pieces of legislation which are being discussed right now. There is also a legal team on it. So that uh, our understanding of the directive will evolve very likely in the weeks to come. But more than happy to start to see as per today, uh, 30th of March, where are we in our understanding? But to come back on the question about what are the hope and the, the ambition somehow of the directive, it's important to, to keep in mind about what um, was at the very beginning of the reflection of the European Commission when they thought um, of this directive. More than 10 years ago, actually, um, in the EU market, we start flourishing products that had diverse level of environmental um, promises to their customers regarding their environmental performance. And at the time, uh, the Commission was keen in order to ensure that uh, there was a positive uptake of those products by consumers all through the European Commission and all through the common market, actually, in the EU, that uh, they wanted to create a common market for green product. That was a title at the time, where the ambition was to ensure that by having a common understanding about what green means in a certain way and what qualifies legitimately as a green product, they want to have this standard understanding all across the member states um, of the European Commission and all across the common market. Uh, those goods could cross easily borders and be more easily picked up by consumers and hence starting to have a very much positive effect about the uptake of product, let's say, with a lower environmental impact. That was the beginning of the ambition. And therefore, they thought that in order to ensure that, we need to have properly informed consumers. And therefore, if we wanted to have informed consumers, they wanted to ensure that the information given to the consumers in relation to the environmental footprint of product was trustworthy, robust, and comparable. 
So those were, let's say, the, the main element uh, that were uh, the main targets of the European Commission. Therefore, when they started to discuss at the time, which which was not a directive, which was a regulation, so to say that initially they wanted to have a single uh, law to cover all member states, uh, those were the ambition. And they also wanted to, to tackle the proliferation of um, labels. They also identified that there was way too many labels for consumers to be able to properly understand what, um, how good is a product. So, for instance, if one label say low carbon footprint, another label talks about the low water footprint, and the, another one talks about the recycled material, another one talks about the betterment in the process, that is very, very complicated for a average consumer to properly understand which one is best. Which one actually tells me that this is the product that I need to go for should I want to reduce my environmental footprint? So therefore, the also open ambition of the directive was not only to give a comparable, trustworthy and robust information to the consumer, but also to tackle the proliferation on labels and ideally to reduce them. So those were the targets of the commission. They were even more reinforced in this direction after having done a survey a few years ago that showed that indeed many of those labels were actually not properly substantiated, meaning there was no real science behind those labels. So that was a bit the, the situation and the ambition of the commission when they wanted to embark in this journey, which was a long journey also before going further. Um, we've been expecting this directive for three years. So as you gently introduced to, to your listeners, that not only it has been very much expected, it is very much debated now, but it has been debated for many years in the past. And it's definitely a very, very complex topic. Okay, great. Thank you for that informative scene setter. And so moving forwards to the publication and the initial response, um, I was reading an article on the Financial Times website, for example, that talked about how the rules aimed at preventing greenwashing have been attacked by consumer and environmental groups for being watered down um, and, you know, as you mentioned, too vague to have an impact. Also, the Environmental Coalition on Standards, an international NGO that I'm sure you're familiar with, um, has come out and been quite critical, saying the proposed legislation opens the way for companies to cherry pick methodologies. Meanwhile, you know, we at the Sustainable Apparel Coalition have commented that we believe it's a missed opportunity and that the directive does not mandate the standardized and clearly defined framework based on scientific foundations. Um, and that it actually fails to provide the legal certainty for companies and clarity to consumers. Of course, on the flip side, some have commented the directive is a good thing and that it will help to stop companies making false claims about the sustainability performance of their products. Um, and of course, that's not just specific to textiles and apparel. But Baptiste, in your opinion, how will the directive help ensure that brands and the industry are not greenwashing consumers and stakeholders? And do you think the directive will be effective in its aims? When we talk about the, uh, the, the importance of the directive, it's already important to have in mind what's already available. Lately, indeed, uh, before going also in this particular directive, we have all witnessed a, a crackdown on greenwashing. We've all seen, may that be um, Lufthansa lately, to, to, uh, which was um, also accused of greenwashing, where many different players also in our sectors were accused of such. They were all accused of greenwashing based on a document which is already available, which is called the Unfair Commercial Practice Directive, which is a guideline, which is, uh, which is slightly different, who inform um, a jurisdiction all across the European Commission on how you should ask uh, brands or how you could ask brand 
to justify the claim or to evaluate if an environmental claim is legitimate or not. So therefore, it's very important to have what's existing today and what are therefore the ad what is the added value that the directive provides. So therefore, coming back on on the general sentiment uh, of uh, ensuring that um, is this directive ensuring that uh, claims are robust? Yes. This is more or less today what we can witness when we look at um, the expectation where they clearly ask that everything you provide needs to be based on scientific evidence, uh, that it needs to be um, managed by a certification scheme which has itself very solid and robust governance, including proper conversation with stakeholders and complaint mechanism. Um, and it asks also for third-party verification of the claim to make sure that therefore self-claims are not uh, uh, recognized anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But those things technically are already present in the Offer Commercial Practice Directive. So they are made low, therefore they are much more strongly imposed, but in terms of content, um, there is not a, a, massive, a massive change. So therefore, if I come to, you rightfully mentioned EPOS, uh, one of those NGOs, which has been, for instance, ask, saying that one of the risks today is that company will be able to cherry pick the methodology. That's completely true. And that's where one of the issue happens that Today, if this law was made, it was to make sure that there is a much more clearer understanding about how do you need to substantiate one of your claims. I don't have to come back on the uh, all uh, the challenge that has been rocking our industry for years regarding what type of data can be used to substantiate a claim. So if you want to talk about uh, the environmental impact of your cotton t-shirt, how should you measure the impact of the cotton itself? How granular do you do you want to be? So we, without being too technical, the idea was that, therefore, there was a lot of conversation about how you should evaluate the impact of material and what type of methodology can you use? And therefore, here, the issue today that we face is that um, different countries had different understanding about how robust one methodology should be and what type of solid secondary data do you need to have? So when you look at the document, they briefly touch about it. Virtually for secondary data, they say it needs to be robust. Okay, why not? And how an added value does that provide to uh, governments uh, when they will be when they will have to implement it? And therefore, indeed, every brand or retailer can choose the methodology of their choice to be able to communicate uh, regarding the environmental performance of their product. If I take another sector and make a little comparison, I like to look, for instance, on what happened in the car industry. So when we look at the car industry, every time you go to buy a car, the manufacturer will have to tell you what is the carbon emission of your car. And this is based actually on a very much standardized testing that we have all heard about. And there was all of this scandal about companies which are uh, playing around the test, but the test is extremely well defined. But now if a car comes and said, I will test my car just by driving in the city, or another one will say, I will test my car just by driving on the highway, the consumption of the two cars will be very different. The methodology in both cases are very scientifically sound. It's very transparent to the consumer, but the output ultimately, you cannot compare it at all. And this is exactly the same situation that we end up in this piece of legislation. That ultimately, anybody can take the methodology that best suits their product. And therefore, that means that to this end, uh, by not having um, come forward with at least advising or recommending a common methodology that we validated by uh, the European Commission, typically such as the product environmental footprint uh, method, which was developed by this very same commission now for the past 10 years, they really make a step back and not only therefore <clears throat> decide that any methodology can do, providing that they are scientifically sound, but which from a practitioner uh, perspective has no meaning to ensure any comparability, 
And to come back to, therefore, I think, I don't know if it was a financial time or another outlet that was, um, it was context, actually, I think, one of the French outlets, which was commenting that by doing so, the European Commission gives the pen back to member states to tell them it's you that will judge ultimately what does that mean to be scientifically sound? What does that mean to be, to have good secondary data? That's exactly what they do. And in this case, therefore, this is why uh, this directive will not completely help brands or the industry to, to properly move forward because it doesn't provide legal certainty. It's way too vague to be able to ensure that everybody will have the same understanding all across Europe. So a judge in Berlin can have a completely different understanding than a judge in Madrid or Rome or Paris. So therefore, that really doesn't go forward to come back at the very day I talked about a common market for green product. It doesn't at all allow a common market for green product. And it doesn't at all, despite what is being said by the commission, actually, provide any comparison at all between the different claims. Okay, thank you. And so, I mean, with that in mind, how would you like to see the directive evolve um, to ensure that it is as effective as possible? Yes, and if you allow me, before I, I move there, just to give a quick um, a quick element, what we have today is a text which has been written by the European Commission. It's not a final document. Now mm -hmm. what's going to happen is that we have a process that normally lasts around 18 months where there will be conversation between uh, the Council, uh, the Commission, and more importantly, the European Parliament um, in order to be able to finalize the text. And it's ultimately the European Parliament that will vote or not on the text. We know that the European Parliament was very much keen to ensure this robustness, trustworthiness, and more importantly, comparability of all of the claims. So therefore, what I hope is that the initial intention of the European Parliament um, will uh, be transferred and uh, therefore will um, be much better um, taken into account in the final text once the uh, European Parliament will have the opportunity to be able to better it. Because it's important to keep in mind that this notion about um, tackling greenwashing, despite what many people may think, it's also extremely important for the industry. It's important for the industry that when one's invest into a better solution that actually has an impact on the environmental performance of a product, they can communicate that to the consumers in a way that cannot be perceived as um, wrong because maybe another player can make the same claim without at all having done the work that this brand is doing when they actually do innovation or other elements. So everybody clearly wants to ensure um, that ultimately the regulation is effective. But coming back to that, this notion of comparability is key. And I hope that this will be uh, properly reflected in the work done uh, and the betterment of the directive by the European Parliament. We want to ensure again that and that's not only an ask for the, from the industry, but also a similar ask by virtually every member state that, again, there is no too much room for interpretation. And the main issue that actually many people, if you look at many comments today, to your point, people can say it's good. Some people say it's demanding. Some other it's not demanding simply because it's unclear. And this unclarity today is something that also we want to see solved moving forward by a much more fine tuning of the expectation. How many impacts do we talk about? Sometimes there is sentences about, um, you need to have scientific evidence about impacts, and as an impact, they list animal welfare. Without going into conversation about is it a good or not topic to discuss, the issue is that is it an environmental impact? What is a scientific measurement of animal welfare? Or things like that. So there is many cases today where there is an opening to include certain elements, but unfortunately, we don't have an exact clarity about how many impact, where, how to measure them, and creating here a very much 
too vague an expectation is at risk either to deceive consumers ultimately or either to deceive policymakers because again the commission fell short of its ambition to provide to provide a proper framework to secure a common market for green products so therefore voilà i hope that ultimately one common method will be recognized by the approach much more clarity on exactly the scope um, of this uh, of this um, directive and which type of impacts we talk about and uh, much more clearer um, expectations so that legislators and policymakers uh, all around the European Commission can have the same understanding of this piece of legislation. Okay, great, thank you. You know, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, what the industry wants. I was, I was reading earlier that, you know, one of our members at the SAC recently published its report stating that climate change is the biggest threat to its business. Um, and I think if you take something like that and then you take changing consumer demands, um, I think there's a, a very clear business case for every CEO in this industry um, to understand that, you know, this is definitely something the industry needs to to work on. Um, and, you know, I think your point there was very clear. So thank you. Okay, so just kind of looking back a little bit in, in my podcast in January, um, I spoke to my guest about the role of communication specifically um, and the impact of greenwashing and, and green hushing as well. But in light of the EU Commission's directive, what do you think are the most important considerations and challenges for brands to ensure they are not greenwashing in their communications? And has the directive helped, and maybe you've answered this already, but has the directive helped to clarify what type of communication is acceptable? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. That's a question um, I receive a lot. We receive a lot in the hub, and that's indeed now many people are and many brands are considering: should I stop indeed communicating? What are the first step I could do, even if this piece we know first, we still try to properly understand all of its requirements, and it will still be challenged by the European Parliament and very likely modified to a certain extent. That therefore, indeed, what can I do already today? And therefore, to to this at least, what we see as a constant and the things which are pretty much secure, I will come back to a few of them. Um, because also they were part of the, of the UCPD, so technically they are already required today, coming back to it. Um, and uh, because we see them also consistently showing in every piece. The first one is to make sure that is a claim you make at a product level actually material to your product. So for instance, sometimes you can make a claim to um, regarding a process, regarding a material, or regarding a segment of your product that ultimately may only, Im may only impact a fraction of the overall impact of your product. So therefore, when you give this information to the consumers, are you actually giving an information that is again material to him or not? If yet, therefore your claim only accounts for a fraction of the impact of the product, it could be that people could challenge the legitimacy of your claim and then that you come back to be accused of greenwashing. Then you also need to ensure that the, that the claim that you make takes into consideration many impacts category. As I mentioned earlier, today one of the main challenges of the directive is that we don't really see or understand how, how many impacts you need to take into consideration. You could virtually take endless amounts of impacts into consideration, but then where does that stop? At which point do we consider that you are sufficiently informed to be able to make a decision? So therefore, to this case, you already know that if your claim tackles a very limited amount of impact, one, two, or three, it's very likely that you are you could be uh, challenged for being greenwashing because you haven't had a robust enough perspective or understanding of all of the impact of the product. 
So the first one is your claim material to the overall impact of the product. Is your claim uh, broad enough that you have already properly understood, therefore, uh, the betterment or not of your product on multiple impacts and potentially some trades off? And then again, we can already come about the verification. Is your claim already verified by a third party independent of you? Again, this is already a recommendation in the unfair commercial practice directive. This law will make it clearly a demand before being able to communicating. But therefore, is your claim um, uh, already uh, verified? Those will, be the, those will be the three points which are important to have in mind about the materiality of the claim, the completeness of the claim, and the verification of the claim. There is many other expectations that we could be developing on. Let's, if I were to take uh, three of them, those are the ones that I will that I will keep. I will make, however, also a little addition: is that there is a particular clause in this directive which specifically forbids any type of ranking regarding an aggregation of impact. Like that, it makes sound a bit barbarian. What am I talking about? About aggregated impact? But what you have to imagine is that. Multiple schemes or uh, standards where uh, ranking, may that be from an A to E or giving percentage or giving whatever, um, rig, uh, on a product, once you combine together, let's say, carbon, water, and uh, resource depletion or whatever impact you are measuring. And now this directive strictly prohibits that, saying that only the European Commission is allowed to have a single score on a product, which is ranking the product on a typically A to B, A to E scale uh, regarding multiple impacts category. What's interesting is that it looks like you could still do the ranking based on one impact, but if you put two impacts, then it's not okay. So that's another conversation of unclarity of the, of the directive. But therefore, for many schemes which are today valid, uh, this is a big question to ask around uh, what will be the um, future of a claim or a scheme where you have a ranking which is provided to consumer based on an aggregation of impacts as per today directive. So voila, that was the last point I wanted to mention. Okay, thank you for that. Now, a little history lesson. The term greenwashing originated in the 1960s um, when the hotel industry devised, I guess, one of the most blatant examples of greenwashing um, when they asked guests to reuse towels to save the environment. Um, more recently, we've seen companies in energy. Um, you mentioned airlines earlier. You have banking, food, and even furniture companies, um, to name just a few, that have been criticized for greenwashing. Um, of course, the fashion industry is also on the receiving end of criticism, um, and quite frankly, rightly so in some areas. But in your opinion, Baptiste, does the fashion and textiles industry have more of a problem with greenwashing than other industries? And if so, why? We have more of a problem, um, but just simply because we are more visible. In the sense that the textile industry we know already a lot is an industry which is first picked a lot by policymakers because um, it's talked a lot because people understand many of the brands in our industry are very well known. I'm currently holding a, a pen. Uh, not many people know brands, pen brands, and so therefore there is less of, a, of an issue there. But if you talk about clothing, everybody is very likely to know the 30, 40 best uh, or most known uh, clothing brand uh, in the globe. Therefore, to this end, that means that yes, we have more of we have more of a problem, but simply because we are more exposed, not because of our practices. At the same time, uh, one could argue that in a sector where um, innovation is still present on a certain segment of the of the sector, particularly thinking about about sports or other segment, that uh, very little difference is made between one white T-shirt and the other one. 
So therefore, it's true that the um, marketing component of our sector uh, may have also uh, amplified the issue of greenwashing because you really want to be able to claim that your white T-shirt or your white shirt is uh, better in whatever aspect than the competition. And this may have indeed amplified this issue of greenwashing for our sector. But because, let's say, of the scrutiny of greenwashing for our sectors, this means that now it's indeed a double responsibility for fashion and textile brands, uh, retailers and manufacturers to be very much aware of those legislation because they are much more likely potentially to be accused of greenwashing, again, coming back to it, just because of the overexposition of our sector to the issue of greenwashing. Okay, good stuff. Thank you. Um, and so to close out, um, I always like to ask my guests the same question. Um, so are you optimistic about where businesses are heading? Um, and what changes and improvements do you think the industry should prioritize um, to ensure they are reducing their impact on the world? That's uh, that's always a very good question to 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 end up with. Um, what type of uh, I, I will start by the second half of your question regarding uh, what could um, uh, what could company do? And by doing so, what I will do is that if I take a step back and if I look at all of the piece of legislation which are currently being discussed, we know that in order to answer them. Um, there is a couple of themes that are uh, popping up in all of this legislation, a common themes which are popping up. The first one is always about a much better traceability system in the sense that uh, knowing much better where your material come from, knowing much better the origin of your raw material, uh, what uh, each and every step of the process, where has it been dyed, where has it been um, knitted or weaved, etc., etc. So this intimate knowledge of uh, one uh, supply chain at first is important. I could also mention the importance of knowing your entire value chain and therefore up to uh, really the end of life of your garment in a much better way. That's very tricky, but that's still also something, if I just look purely from a policy perspective and looking at the expectation, it's something that could be definitely a step that people could take. And then the idea is that once we, you know all of the different steps of your products and materials, that then you are on track to be able to go to the second step, step which is definitely having a better understanding of the impact of those product. What are the practices, um, both on environmental and social field um, of your facilities all along the value chain? What type of data can you gather much more down the line um, regarding the materials uh, production? So therefore, this knowledge of uh, where and what's the impact will serve you for everything. To better substantiate a claim, as we talked about, to better discuss about um, your practices and your impact reduction, uh, may that be required by the due diligence, may that be required because you have to, to disclose your environmental impact and explain a robust um, track of improvement, et cetera, and et cetera. And then ultimately, back on that, if I were to just, um, again, so always trying to, to, to take three bullet points here, um, if, I, if I were to keep one uh, also main elements and next step for that is that always wondering how robust your is your decarbonization pathways. When I hear sometimes some um, industry uh, professional of other, of other sectors, earlier on, you just asked me about, uh, uh, is our sector more exposed to greenwashing than other ones? Uh, is also our sector having an equal pressure to be able to decarbonize clearly? But therefore, sometimes some other sectors have a much more industrial approach about how to decarbonize. And this is something that, therefore, uh, our sector can reflect further about uh, how robust it is, is its decarbonization pathway, and more importantly, how robust is the decarbonization pathways of each and every actor 
along the chain. How robust is the decarbonization pathways um, of um, certain fiber producer? How, of, how robust is the decarbonization pathway of certain processes, etc.? So therefore, here there is really a um, good uh, look that one should give at its uh, pathway of decarbonization to evaluate of it. How robust is it? And that's really um, practical and uh, it is ultimately and likely to be able to lead to any change. And that will lead me, therefore, to the second half of your question, which was the first one, regarding um, how optimistic I am. At least what, again, um, brings optimism is always um, the fact that, uh, having been in the sector now for 20 years, um, we always tend to say that, indeed, the type of conversation we have in 2023 are so much more um, deep, so uh, much more um, impactful than the one we used to have 20 years ago. So therefore, I'm um, confident when I see the evolution of the um, of the, the pathway we are taking. At the same time, uh, I'm what I just mentioned about decarbonization pathway, I will fail to identify a many robust decarbonization pathway in our sector. So therefore, here is more the thing that uh, the need for change is key. We are all talking always about how fast our action should be to be able to reduce our pathway, but there is no way you can have any proper reduction of your pathway, reduction of your carbon footprint in 2030, if already today you are still figuring out what type of decarbonization pathway you want to take. And also one thing that is more a um, a question uh, for you or for your audience or for another one is that I talked earlier about the challenge of having um, uh, green claims, which are now supposed to cover virtually each and every impact possible. But I do believe that at some point in time, industry and other people will have to make a choice. I don't believe that we can tackle all of the impacts at the same time. I think we have to be cognizant and respectful and understand each of those. But there will be very um, hard conversation to have at some point in time about what do we need to prioritize? Do we have the mean, the resources, and the capacity to tackle 20, 30, I could name at least 40 different impacts today, and 40, uh, each covering a different field upon which radical transformation is needed? But I, do I believe that we have the capacity in 10 years to tackle a lot of those? Clearly not. So therefore, the question will be, how do we start to engage in conversation that in order to make sure that the industry comes into the right way, that we need to prioritize? We keep asking uh, policymakers that, for instance, rightfully so, that when there is conversation like due diligence, we need to see a clear risk assessment and prioritization. But it's key that this prioritization is done at an industry level. And until we have a clearly set prioritization at an industry level, that is not every brand retailer manufacturer having its own priority list, I wonder how effective we can be. And that's the type of conversation that I very much look forward to see emerging in this sector about exactly what's our prioritization at an industry level. And therefore, from there, how do we take the necessary step to tackle each of the issue in their respective order as per the priority that we have collectively defined, all together with industry, stakeholders, shareholders, being mindful of manufacturers, brand retailers, but all coming to one common prioritization. Great. Thank you. Excellent. Um, very happy that we're able to give our, our listeners something to think about um, <laughs> as we you. close out. Um, so, Baptiste, um, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm, I'm sure we could talk about this topic for hours, um, but it's time to close and get back to the day job. Um, so thank you again and I hope to see you soon uh, and many thanks to our listeners as well. Thanks a lot, Lee, and thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, 
Please check out the links or visit www.apparelcoalition.org. Thanks again and look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Bye for now.